this morning. Well, these verses <clears throat> these verses that I've just read, these, these verses will be our text this morning as we continue to take a look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. And the title I'd like to give to the meditation this morning is Dealing with Difficulties. Dealing with Difficulties. I believe it's true to say that everyone wants an easy life with no difficulties and hardships. Even Christians, we all want an easy life. But we're not promised an easy life. We're not promised a trouble-free life when we become believers. If we have come to some kind of faith and someone tells us that everything will be hunky-dory when we become Christians and when we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have been following a false gospel because that's not authentic Christianity. And Paul tells the Philippians some of his painful experiences and how he reacted to them. And for the time we have this morning, we want to look at Paul's reaction to difficulties. How are we to deal with these things that come upon us? How are we to deal with sickness? How are we to deal with the passing of a loved one suddenly? How are we to deal with prodigal children, for instance? How are we to deal with financial difficulties? How are we to deal with a multitude of other things that will come across our paths in our normal uh, life that we live because we're not immune from these things. They will come upon us. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. That's true of every man, but there are certain things that belong to the Christian, to the professing Christian, to the Christian that follows the Lord Jesus Christ, things that are unique to him or to her. And this is what Paul deals with here. So first of all then, we want to reiterate and we want to state this principle. We want to get this firmly into our minds because this is what we, he begins here in this new section of this chapter. But I would ye should understand. He's telling them something that maybe they hadn't grasped when he was with them or maybe something they have forgotten. But now he wants to bring it to their minds to, that they might understand. And he does it in a very affectionate manner. But I would ye should understand brethren. He's speaking to brethren. Because as we have noticed in our introduction to the book of Philippians, the Philippians loved their founding pastor. And they had heard certain things about him, and they were concerned. But then he likewise loved them, and he wanted them to understand this thing that afflictions and difficulties and trials and problems will come upon them. It is to be expected. They feared for his health. 
they had heard he hadn't been too well. And they also feared things like this. Is this the way that God treats an apostle? Is this the way that God treats a servant? Here was Paul in prison. Surely God would not allow this to happen. Surely there's something not quite right. We've put our faith and our hope and trust in God through the preaching of the apostle. Now this same apostle, this great apostle, is in prison. What about our faith? Is there something wrong? Should this happen? We have believed what the apostle said. Now, because of what he said, he's in prison. What kind of faith have we got? What do we believe in? These are the cares and the concerns that came from the Philippians. And the apostle Paul, being a master, pastor, one who loved his congregations, he begins to inform them and to remind them and to bring to their understanding, this is something that you must expect. That's the principle that we want to highlight right at the very beginning. And we go to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. You go to the, his words that he said to his disciples that time when he was immensely intimate with them, and when he opened up his heart before he went to Gethsemane and before he went to Golgotha, before the wrath of God was poured out upon him, the Son of God opened up his heart and he revealed things to his disciples, to his 11 apostles, and we have them recorded for us in chapter 14 and 15 and 16, of John's gospel. And part of what he said to them was exactly the matter that we're dealing with here. In John chapter 16, at the end of the verse, uh, end of the chapter, verse 33, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ would have every one of us to follow him. Jesus Christ will receive all who will come to him. Let's be clear. But when we issue the gospel invitation, friends, we tell you sincerely that when you begin to follow the Lord Jesus and when you align yourself with him and when you figuratively take up the cross, then you can expect to have difficulties. And you can expect to have difficulties that are unique to being a Christian. And if you haven't heard that before in the, in the proclamation of the gospel, and if you're unaware of that, you are following a false gospel. You're under a false ministry. We are not of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel matter at all. But what you will have, you will have the peace of God that passes all understanding. Now, this is an anathema to the world. How can you have tribulations? How can you have trials? How can you have disappointments? How is it that your world, in some sense, can be turned upside down, yet you have peace with God? Well, that's what Jesus Christ gives us, friends. 
because the ultimate problem has been dealt with. What's the ultimate problem? You might say, well, friends, we're never going to tire to tell you the ultimate problem is your sin, your own personal sin, sir, madam. That's what's happened when you become a Christian. Your sins have been forgiven. The slate has been wiped clean. You're no longer guilty before God. You're not under his wrath and his condemnation. You don't fear him the coming judgment? No, because Christ has been condemned in your room and in your place. And because of that, although your world might truly be in turmoil, as David's was, yet he knew the peace of God, even amongst all his turmoils. And this is what we get in the gospel. But in the world ye shall have tribulation. That's what Jesus says. And this tells us he doesn't take us out of the world. You know, some people will say, when we become Christians, we go out of the world. You have that in Roman Catholicism. That's why they have uh, their monasteries and all kinds of things like that, where people might go and go away from the world. And of course, we know what happens in these places. What happens? Well, they take all their sin into the monasteries and into their nunneries, and all kinds of things happen because the problem is with their hearts. But the Christian, his heart has been renewed. He's got a new nature. He's got a new purpose, new aims, new goals, new drives, new motivations. He's got peace with God, something he never had before. Friend, have you got peace with God? Don't answer me, answer yourself. Have you got peace with God? This is what we have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. And it's only to be found in him. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Paul goes on to tell Timothy, and we noticed this when we went through the pastoral epistles but it's good to remind ourselves, friends, because Timothy was possibly inclined to be somewhat timid, and he had to be stirred up. And who's not timid? Are we not all timid on occasions? Oh, you might think the minister's as bold as brass. If only you knew. If only you knew. We're all timid. We can be like Peter one moment ready with our sword to fight for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the next moment, we can deny him. Do we not hold our hands up and say there are occasions when we are timid? Well, friends, for the timid, we have encouragement. The word of God is here for the Christian to encourage him. Acknowledge your timidity. Acknowledge it. What does Paul say to Timothy? who was inclined to be timid. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Timothy, you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. If you're going to be true to the cause, if you're going to cling to Jesus Christ, if he's the one you're following, the world will certainly persecute you. You better get used to it. 
But you're not left alone, Christian. No, you're not. You might feel alone in your home and family. You might feel alone in your community. Why? You might even feel alone in a congregation. But you're never alone. Never alone. Is that not what Paul says again later on in that epistle? The Lord stood by me. Oh, all his friends, all in Asia, they all forsook him. He was the founder of their of the church. It was through him they were converted, but they all forsook him. But the Lord didn't. And that's the promise that's true to all of us, friends. We'll find when ministers will disappoint us, office bearers will disappoint us, spouses will disappoint us, people who we thought were loyal will disappoint us, but the Lord will never disappoint. Never. He remains true and steadfast. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. How are we to react? Well, Paul gives us some illustrations of how he reacted. But there's something that we can say that would undergird all our reactions to persecution, to people who mistreat us, whether they be Christians or non-Christians, what must we do? We should never return evil for good. We should never. And we should never return evil for evil. Instead, we are to be good at all times. We are to maintain our testimony. We are to shine as stars. We are to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we find here? Well, we find Paul giving us his experience, how he dealt with it. And things will happen to a believer. That's what he says, that the things which happened unto me, the things which happened unto me, verse 12. Now Paul was rarely alone. And most of the things that happened to him happened to others also, but he was just relating his own experience. Again, reminding us that it is something that everyone every Christian will experience. And he, he could have given us a list, but he didn't outline them here. But we could ask ourselves this question, how did the Apostle Paul get to where he was when he wrote this letter? He was in prison in Rome. We read some of his ordeal in chapter 22 of Acts, and we shall go through it when we come to that portion as we go through the book of Acts. But basically, Paul was in prison after he went through a number of terrible things that happened to him. He went to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey, and he was advised not to go to Jerusalem. 
In fact, there was a prophet, Agabus, who came and told him not to go. And Luke told him not to go. And many others told him not to go to Jerusalem because they're going to get you. But he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He believed that it was right for him to go. And he went to Jerusalem and he took some alms, took some charity there from the Gentile Christians to, the, to give to the poor Christians in Judea. And that's where he went. And he went into the temple. He was lawful when he went into the temple. He had some Gentiles with him, but they didn't go into the place that they should not have gone into. But some people saw the Apostle Paul, and they saw these Gentiles with him, and they accused him of bringing Gentiles into the temple, which he should not have done. And because of that, we find what we read in Acts chapter 22. And he was about to be torn apart by the crowd until the chief captain rescued him. And he was about to beat him up. And Paul brought it to their attention that he was a Roman. And therefore he was let go. But the soldiers had to take him away from the Jews because they would have torn him apart. And because of this, there was a plot out to assassinate Paul that he was sent to Caesarea in the middle of the night. And he was there for two whole years in a prison in Caesarea. And when he was defending himself, he appealed to Caesar. And because of that, he was then sent to Rome. And this is where we find him here. So for over four years, the Apostle Paul was in prison, two years in Caesarea and two years in the, in the, the prison in Rome. And with all the difficulties that he encountered, when he went to Rome, for instance, he, ha he took part in a storm and he was shipwrecked. He nearly lost his life. But he knew ultimately that he had to go to Rome and he had to testify there concerning the gospel. He undertook all of these things, all these things that happened to him. And he says at the end, that these things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. This is what gave him that peace, because he recognized that all of these things ultimately were under the will of God, and that he was serving God in his day and generation, and despite what might be seen outwardly, the gospel indeed was advancing. Now this might seem strange to us. He had been four years in prison, two years in Caesarea, two years in Rome, yet he says the gospel was advancing. Does this not remind us, friends, of that strange but wonderful text that we find in the book of Psalms? Psalm 76, verse 10. We love to quote it, but it's apt and appropriate on this occasion. And that verse 10 of Psalm 76 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. It was the wrath of man that put him in prison. And the wrath of man thought that by putting him in prison that somehow the gospel would be extinguished. In actual fact, it brought about 
the gospel to flourish and to prosper. And he gives us some illustrations of how that gospel indeed did flourish. Verse 13, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Here was Paul deemed by the Jews to be a criminal. It was clear and it was evident to those in the palace, whether that's Caesar's palace or whether it was somewhere else, there's a bit of debate about. But nevertheless, in all the places that he went and all the people that he encountered, they all said, this man is not a criminal. This man has done nothing wrong. This man is here because of what he believes in. The gospel indeed was flourishing because people were coming to realize the truth of the gospel. And not only that, and many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. What did the Jews want? The Jews wanted the gospel not to be proclaimed. The Jews wanted to silence Paul. They didn't want him to proclaim the gospel. But by doing what they did, others saw that the apostle Paul was true to his commission and that he was proclaiming the gospel. And what happened? They were emboldened. Paul might not be able to preach publicly in places like this, but others were. And others were going out and they were proclaiming that gospel because they had new vigor, new zeal, because of the example of Paul, the prisoner. And is your life an example, Christian? Does your life stimulate others? Oh, we're not talking about preaching. But can people look at your life and can they see that you're true-hearted and sincere and genuine? Can they see something in you that emboldens them, that says, well, I would like to be like that person? Christianity must truly be true. Look at that person there. See how they conduct themselves. See their life. See their home. This is what happened here. Paul in chains, in a smelly dungeon. Yet his example emboldened others. Difficulties adversities. They didn't stop the gospel. You see, Paul was one who could look past the adversity, not at the adversity itself. The adversity itself was not pleasant. It was painful. It would go against flesh and blood. But Paul was able to look past it and to see something good coming out of it. And this is the way that we are to look at our problems, the things that come upon us, the things that we would naturally recoil from. We are to see the hand of God, and we are to ask for grace. Grace that we might be sustained during that trial, during that difficulty. Very often our prayer is, Get me out of it. When we, our prayer should be, 
give me grace in it. We have here this word furtherance in verse 12, where it says, which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. He recognized that the gospel was indeed progressing despite his afflictions. Now the word that's translated here furtherance literally means to cut toward, to cut toward. It was a military term used of engineers who, when preparing a road for the advancing army, would remove obstacles such as rocks and trees. They went before the army. They prepared a smooth road, a straight road. That's what the word was used for, used by them, in order that when the army would come, they would find no obstacles. Well, this is exactly what was happening with Paul's afflictions. It was for the furtherance. It was to cut away. It was to cut a path in order for the gospel to be proclaimed and for it to prosper and to flourish. Is this not a wonderful then encouragement for the people of God when difficulties come upon us? Can we not rise above these things and see the gospel advancing? And this is not just a New Testament thing. This, this is what we find in the Old Testament. I don't need to highlight it. You know it well. But see, see Joseph and all his troubles, all his hardships. See what happened to him. And see the outcome. See the end. Didn't Jacob say that all these things are against me? When in actual fact we know all of these things were for him. All of these things brought about the deliverance of God's people. This is the mentality that we're, we're, we're to have. What happened when God's people came out of Egypt? They came out of Egypt with a high hand, but the Pharaoh's army came after them. They saw Pharaoh's army coming after them, and they despaired. What did Moses say to them? Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today ye shall see them again no more. Stand still and see the salvation of God. And this is what exactly what Paul was saying to them, that they might understand the gospel is going on. I may not be able to do what I wanted to do, but God is not in any sense fettered. Has this any practical application for us? Well, it most certainly does for the church of God. Are we not under governments who seek to limit what we can say and what we can do? Do we not find that today? It doesn't matter what political party you're talking about or what you support, whether it be Westminster or, or Hollywood. Do they not want to silence the, the proclamation of the word of God? Do they not want us to say from the pulpit, repent and be converted and apply that to everyone? They tell us they want to have a, what, what do they call it? A ban on conversion therapy. 
Well, friends, we're in the business of conversions. We're in the business of telling sinners to repent. We're in the business of telling adulterers and fornicators and homosexuals and lesbians and liars and cheats and murderers and blasphemers and Sabbath breakers. We're in the business of telling them to repent and we're not going to stop. We're not. They may bring laws, but we're not. We're not going to fetter the gospel. This is our command. This is our commission. This is the great purpose of the church in order to proclaim the word of God. And they want to fetter us as the Jews wanted to fetter the Apostle Paul. And we will see we will see, friends, if governments bring about laws that will stop parents even giving advice to people who are concerned or confused about their gender, being made criminals because they tell them or give them sound biblical advice. I don't need to elaborate. You know what I'm talking about. It's all over the place. Well, friends, when people see this when the people see that the government want to restrict what the church has always taught, do you think that the ordinary, everyday, average individual will be somewhat pleased with a government that wants to silence the church from doing what it should be? We will see but if this ban does come upon us, it will actually be for the furtherance of the gospel. Well, Paul here in prison wasn't able to go about his normal activities, yet the gospel progressed. There were preachers who took up the mantle, if you like, and preached, and some of them were sincere, but some of them were not. Some of them were not. Now, we know that Paul had problems with Judaizers. All throughout his ministry, Paul had problems with people who followed him, and they were Judaizers. And they were people who preached, yes, Jesus, but you must follow the, the ceremonial law. You must become Jews in order to be saved. It's not enough to have Christ as your Lord and Savior. You must be ones who become Jews. You must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses also to be saved. Paul would have none of that. None whatsoever. But that's not what he's referring to here. Because the people were not preaching a false gospel but they were preaching the gospel with wrong motives. They were people who were jealous of Saul and his, uh, Paul and his reputation, and they wanted to bring him down and for they themselves to be seen as the people that you should listen to and to follow. There is a big difference. Paul would never countenance 
the Judaizers to preach. But he did appreciate people who did preach the authentic gospel, yet their motive was not pure. Why? Well, because. What then? Verse 18, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. When the Judaizers preached, Christ was not preached. But when these brethren did preach Christ, it was truly Christ. It was truly the gospel. But they were preaching with wrong motives. And this can happen, friends. This can happen. It can happen in our day and in our generation. But Paul was content because ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ was glorified and his gospel was proclaimed. And even if these people thought that by their preaching, they might, in some sense, deaden the ministry of the Apostle Paul. It did not bother him. His aim, his goal, his delight was to see Christ and him preached. That's the way he dealt with difficulties. That's the way the Christian is to deal with difficulties. Christ is to be glorified. The words of the Lord Jesus, uh, of John the Baptist concerning Christ are apt and appropriate. He must increase and I must decrease. Amen. And may God be pleased to bless his word to us. Let us pray together.